Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, ready to do the buds, dudes, friends handshake, but only when special shit happens, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. I hope I get to hear him more when he's not on mute. I can pretend to say his voice. Don, I wish we... Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> hi. Um, <laughs> what I was saying to myself, apparently, Patrick, was that it's amazing to me that in 40 years, we don't have a special handshake yet. And so maybe in the second 40 years of our relationship... Um, or our lives, we'll be able to come up with one. Hopefully special stuff will be happening that will merit a, a handshake over the next 40 years. <laughs> well, this week we are joined by a feeling film contributor and film critic to the Windy City, Don Shanahan. Hello, fellas and best friends. I don't have a handshake either, but I feel like we exchanged certain like emojis and gifs in a way that could be a handshake. I feel like that's close enough. Yes, but Don, you've just lost some cool points with me by calling he it a GIF. He called it a GIF. What is he doing? Oh, I know. What is wrong with it? You is peanut butter. It's what Which we're is talking about appropriate. <laughs> I, I had a little bit of GIF on the roof of, over roof of my mouth when I said that. I, I have full admission here. <laughs> Never look a GIF horse in the mouth, I guess, right? Mm. Um, okay. Well, if you uh, haven't guessed already, we were talking about the sleeper hit of 2019, The Peanut Butter Falcon, a movie that found its way into each of our hearts when it released earlier this year. Now, if it hasn't found its way into yours, a.k.a. you haven't seen it, please know that we are going to be talking in-depth throughout this discussion, so make sure that you correct that by seeing the movie, falling in love with it like we have, and then coming back to join the conversation. You have been warned, and here we go. As we always like to do, we will start with our one-word takeaways, beginning with Don. What was yours? I have to cheat and do two, and it's good story. Oh, uh, okay. I know it's going to steal a little bit of thunder later, but um, no, for me, it's just the idea that um, I think we're going to say this a lot, but I love the quote in the movie that that Tyler says to Zach. It's it's have a good story to tell when you die, and I like that there's an empowering kind of why wait urgency in Tyler's plea and credo to kind of live life to the fullest and chase dreams. And for me, this movie didn't just make a good story. It made a great story. And they did it on the first try, a couple of rookie filmmakers. And it's just, um, it's something that, um, has earned my undying kind of attention, praise and appreciation. It's one of those films this year that, uh, kind of like hearts beat loud last year, a couple of the little darlings we've had in our lives and in our circles where it's one of the first things I recommend to people like, Hey, I just need a good movie. I said, well, you got to find this one. Um, because really the, the purifying freedom that churns through this movie could cultivate kind of any barren heart. Uh, I just love the experience. It, it, that that kind of quote, the idea of a good story, kind of makes you think about how your own story is going. Um, and I love that mighty motivating accomplishment that this little lovable film can do. Yeah, absolutely, Don. I completely agree. My one word takeaway is family. I love this movie. And, I mean, it's one of those films where every single moment has me locked into it. And I've really determined over a lot of sleepless nights and 
and looking at my reviews that like a five star movie for me, that's what it takes. It takes me being completely engaged in a story and a film nonstop. I can't have a lull. I can't have that one little piece of the movie that I just don't really, oh, you know, I don't really care for that little bit right there. And this is one of those movies that from start to finish, it keeps my attention perfectly locked in. The cinematography, the score, the acting, most of all the story, like Don just said, all of it is perfect. And for me, the depiction of people who come together and become a family is one of the sweetest that I think I've ever seen. This theme of family is running deep throughout, whether it's Tyler's loss of his, whether it's Zach's desire for someone to replace his missing parents in his life, or even eventually just the way that these three come together to be a family in a very non-traditional sort of way. What makes it even better to me is that the creators and the stars of this film are family too. Now, the movie was made by a director and writing team named Nilsson and Schwartz, who first met Zach Gotzigan, who is the actor who portrays Zach in the film, at a camp for disabled actors about eight years ago. It was in Venice, California. They were making a short film with him, and Nilsson said that they saw Zach making really intelligent acting decisions that just blew them away. And so they approached him, and they talked to him about what his goals were, and he said, I want to be an actor in Hollywood. And they told him that they could see his talent, but that that realistically probably wasn't going to happen for him. And Zach had a brilliant idea, and he said he asked them to write a movie for him if they were that on board. And so they did. And Shia came on board uh, because Ben Foster had something else to do. Go figure. Uh, I could actually see Ben Foster in this role pretty perfectly. I don't know that he would be as well or as good as Shia, but I love the idea of that as well. But Shia replaced him. And when he came on board, this was sort of therapeutic for him uh, in a different way than making Honey Boy would be later on. But he and Zach became super close while filming. And I think that their bond shines through in this movie. It really kind of brings an authenticity to their relationship in the film. Apparently, many of the moments that we're going to talk about that resonated very deeply with us were actually unscripted and were just the two of them messing around. And they were captured on camera and the filmmakers were like, well, that's that's the right thing right there. So the fact that the entire crew was fully behind the purpose of this film, it wasn't exploitative, it wasn't cynical in any way. To me, that is just so encouraging. They all became a family and it shows. And I think that the story's impact on us as viewers is greater because of it. You're exactly right, Aaron. And having that family aspect of it, not only on camera, but off created that good story, as you mentioned, Don. And Aaron, my one one takeaway was was Bond. You mentioned it earlier. That's a key element that what is what makes a family and a good story happen. When you have that common ground, when you have that one idea that allows you as an individual and allows you as a group to say, you know what, we're going to make something special. It happens on movie sets. It happens on TV shows. It happens in, I would imagine, in military environments where you're brought together for a common purpose and that common purpose supersedes any individual ego that would need to be set aside for the sake of making something or doing something for the greater good. It plays out here in this movie. And I think that's why this movie shines so brightly as much as it does, because it feels authentic. It feels like every character in here is giving a full on, genuinely desirable performance, not just to make themselves look better as actors, 
but to elevate the story because they care about it that much. To me, that's what a family is, and it's really fueled by that bond that they have. When we have a movie like this, it's important to understand that you have a small cast, and that small cast has to get huge performances because you don't have a lot of room to make mistakes or to have you know, a half-hearted performance. And none of these actors do that. They all bring a full force to their performances. And it begins with our two main characters. Something that I've noticed uh, as I've been watching movies this year is when you have a character-driven film, when a character not just based on action, I mean, obviously, you have to have characters in a story, but more often than not with your, I guess, your more high, highbrow, your, your um, I can't remember the, the word, uh, a lot of movies, it's centered around either action or it's centered around just kind of a surface-level story. But when you have a movie that is anchored by two characters, what I found is that the first three or four minutes really help to define not only the tone of the movie, but they get you introduced to the characters themselves in a unique way. And I think Peanut Butter Falcon is incredibly successful at this. We get so much in probably three and a half minutes of being introduced to Zach and Tyler. And I'd like to believe that in those three minutes, had we not gotten anything else, we could have probably done some kind of analysis or made some predictive idea of what their motives are, what might happen. And that's not bad for the story. I think it's actually really good storytelling because of the fact that you don't have to have a black screen with a bunch of text that says, here are two main characters. You let their actions speak for themselves and you start inferring. And that inference is what helps us get connected to the character. So showing us rather than telling us, giving us humor and action all in the span of a few minutes, we have a relationship with these two characters that haven't even met yet, but we have a relationship with them. I agree because this movie does a really good job of doing it in an economical way. A programmer at a film festival once told me that, uh, he, uh, he viewed all kinds of films all the time just to kind of see what's coming in. And he's like, if I see one more movie that takes the first five minutes of its running time just to show the mundane, the mundanity of somebody getting up out of bed and brushing their teeth and putting their clothes on and calling that character development, it's, it's lazy and stupid and, and not enough. And I think this movie does a better job of that because like you said, they put action into it, especially with Zach. You know, the nursing home setup just gives us his charm. His interpersonal skills, his jovial communication, and even a little bit of his scheming with the rustling and that great Bruce Dern scene and the breakout and all that. And I think that's what a great introduction there where it's not I'm brushing my teeth or I'm having lunch. I'm scheming to break out of my nursing home, you know, and that's that's a great way of doing that kind of introduction that goes further than the mundane. I think with Tyler, um, it's a little less because I think we're left to wonder a little bit if he's kind of the the criminal until we really see him interact with Zach because as he meets Zach, we see him, you know, really kind of do, I don't want to say dastardly things like he's twirling a mustache or anything, but um, we see him make all these ridiculously horrible choices with a little bit of flashbacks to pieces and parts. But when he starts to interact with Zach, that's when those layers kind of peel away coupled with those flashbacks showing his brother played by John Bernthal where, you know, Zach is presented as an enigma to start and that's okay because you know, or I should say Tyler's presented as an enigma to start, and that's okay, because Zach is there to kind of peel those onion layers back, and I like that. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan. Huge, huge fan. In fact, my notes I wrote down, 
about the awesome opening sequence before I even saw that you want to talk about it because it does stick out. And the fact that the very first line of the movie to me is important. It's Zach standing in line at the cafeteria window. And he is saying, he says, Hey, and I, I just found a lot of value in that. Like the film opens with him. And I think from that first shot, it tells you he is going to be a priority that he is not on the side. He is not here as a gimmick that he is the man of this story. It is about him. And I love that. I thought it was very intentional, but just the way in which we go through, I mean, it's obviously fun to see the scheming take place in the cafeteria. And like you said, Bruce Stern limited role here, but he's so good and he's just perfect for this. Was he in Nebraska? Because I, I feel like it reminded me a lot of that character in Nebraska. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure Jeremy Calcura can confirm this, but yes, he's in Nebraska. I think it is. And uh, that's who I thought of, right, when I saw this performance. But we get to see, like, Zach scheming and his desires in those brief conversations that we hear. And we get to learn about Eleanor as well. We get this wholesome, sweet version of Dakota Johnson that is so refreshing to see. And we find out that she cares about him. And we also find out that she is trying to do her job and she is trying to take care of him in the best way that she feels she should. So we get all of that really quickly. And then when we get to Tyler, we get the flashback to the brother scene within that first sequence. I think it's really important because it gives context to his actions. And Don, you said it like he's a criminal. Like there is really no question about that. So he may be upset. He may be doing things that we feel we would want to do if we were in his shoes, but we'll, maybe we'll talk about it more later. But I, I mean, there is an element to Tyler that we are introduced to that gives us a character that definitely is someone who is not in the best position to necessarily come into contact with Zach. And I think it sets that up for us so perfectly so that we know immediately when Zach shows up in his boat, we get that feeling as an audience member of, uh Oh, conflict. And then we get to have it, you know, like you said, those layers get peeled back as the story develops, and that's the beauty of watching the relationships develop. And there's even a common ground a little bit because they're both schemers in their own right. They might be motivated by different things, but we're sort of getting the hint that, you know what, they're going to end up together. Obviously, you've seen the trailers. You know that they're going to end up together in some way, shape, or form. But the film does a really poignant job of pointing out the fact that it gives us kind of a why, not just that they end up together, but there might be a hint at why they stay together. Because it could be like the odd couple in some regards, where you have one character that's like, I want to come along, another character's like, no, leave me alone. And we get some of that, but eventually we get a at least a semi-conscious choice by Tyler to have Zach come along. There's a fantastic moment in the movie where Tyler is in a gas station and it's probably my favorite scene of the entire movie. And you have Eleanor coming in showing him the picture of Zach saying, have you seen this guy? And there's this great banter between the two of them. You half expect him to say, Oh, you're looking for this guy, but he hesitates. And through that dialogue, we almost see him kind of work through. Should I tell? Should I not? And then he starts seeing value in Zach, not for a reward, not for a ransom, not for anything like that. But we get informed later on when he said, you're a fugitive, just like me. We have something in common. 
we should we we're on the run together. Now we have a bond. We have a bond that's not going to be broken. And that's of course when the great handshake takes place. And I, I love that sequence of events because of the fact that Tyler sees something in Zach that is valuable, not because he's going to get something to gain, but because he has something in common with him. And I, I love that, that foreshadows at the very beginning. It also informs something that is said at the very beginning of the movie. Uh, it's a quote that says, friends are the family you choose. I think that's a fantastic line. Aaron, you mentioned your one word takeaway being family. I absolutely agree with the statement. Um, I don't know who I was talking to, if it was on a past episode of the, the podcast or through some form of social media. But I remember hearing somebody say Friendsgiving is a lot more popular these days than actual Thanksgiving because the people you invite over are actually people you want to hang out with. It's not an obligatory event. Um, we just recently had a Friendsgiving with several uh, friends of ours in our supper club. And that's a very true statement. You're consciously saying, I want you to come over and share a meal with me. And I think that there's some truth in the fact that we do bring people into our lives that in a lot of ways have a closer connection than the people we share blood with. I think it's because of experiential things. It's from going through different things. Aaron, you and I are best friends, and we've had a chance to share some really uh, important things with one another. There's a reason why we're best friends. It's because there are things that I share with you that I don't share with anybody else. And there's a reason for that. There's longevity. There's consistency. There's a level of trust. And when you look at Zach and Tyler over the course of the movie, they were the friends that became family. And it's a beautiful way that the that the writers and directors and the cast and crew all make this idea happen. And it, and it kicks off right in that scene, by the way. I just want to point out, that's Bruce Dern. That's his moment, is that conversation. And he... Zach says, Carl, you are my best friend and you are my family. And then it's Bruce Stern that comes back, Carl, who says, well, that's just it. Family are the friends you choose. And what I love is Zach comes back to that. He responds to that. And he says, and Carl, you are invited to my birthday party. Now, I'm going to try to get through this podcast without crying. God help me. Um, but that that is one of like that opening point of dialogue between the two of them. I was like, OK, there's a connecting point. And then it just goes. Basically, from there, I texted you, Patrick, and I was like, well, this movie is like one giant connecting point, essentially. So it's really hard to kind of pick a moment. But that was the first one. And that little sequence is what did inform really the majority of where my one word takeaway came from, because you're right. It absolutely, you know, we talk about love being a choice and not just this emotion that we experience, this physical sensation that we get, you know, that intensity there's something to that, but love is a choice that you make. Don, you're married. You have been for a while now. Like you, you know this just as well as Patrick does, as well as I do from, from my failed marriages. It, you know, you have to wake up some days and you have to decide that you're going to do the things that you have committed yourself to do. And it could be weeks of having to do that. It could be a month. Sometimes it's not going to go well, but you push through those times, right? And it's the same concept here with the differentiation between family and friends. You choose who those people are that, that are going to come close to you, like Patrick said, who you trust, who you're going to share that information with. And it's not going to be everybody. And it doesn't have to be your family. Your family is your blood relatives. And there is a special type of bond, I think, that may come with that. But you don't get... I think special privileges in a person's life, or you shouldn't get special privileges in a person's life just because 
you were born to their dad's sister or whatever. You know what I mean? Like that is a really random reason to give unconditional trust and, and faith in someone. Um, that stuff is earned and that's what comes from friendships. I'm right there with you. You know, um, this friends of the family you choose line made a lesson in my review because that's kind of how I roll and all that. And, uh, for me, I think the angle I went with kind of thinking about this and embracing this was the idea of merging goals together, which is not unlike really a dedicated family, you know, because in the peanut butter Falcon kind of what begins as happenstance really evolves to feel like destiny. Like they choose each other after the rest of the people around them in their life, including true family have either left or discarded them or, or course have passed away and both have really kind of gained an unlikely best friend in each other and that healing support that comes from that kind of union you know um you two are very lucky to to have you know a good solid best friend I, i'm going to sound like a guy who's going to cry in the podcast where um i don't have it i honestly don't have a, a good dude friend my wife is my best friend and that's awesome for me but like i don't have like a guy to go out and have beers with my brother lives in texas we're we're cool and all and we would go out for beers if we could but he's in texas i'm in chicago and yeah so i watch a movie like this and i'm not sitting here completely at the level of like man i just want to go on a boat with shia labeouf right now but i kind of want to go on a boat with shia labeouf right now so i'm gonna share some moonshine with the dude so um i like that i like the i know it sounds strategic to say merging goals together but uh i don't know that's the dedication that comes with it the healing support that's there Something interesting that I saw in the movie this time around was trying to find the moment that Tyler chose to embrace that friendship with Zach. And it almost came accidentally. He's um, walking and, and Zach's walking with him. He leaves him at the dock and then he hitches a ride with a truck and he finds out that the, the, the shrimp equipment or whatever it was that he set on fire they're Crap looking lots. for yes um he's at a he's at a railroad crossing and he's, he chooses to get out because he doesn't want to get caught going into town for some reason he goes back to the dock and he sees zach getting made fun of getting ridiculed getting bullied by that other kid and he says hey and i think when he says hey that's when his mind changes because he wasn't going back to rescue zach he didn't get triggered by that radio announcement to say, oh, I need to go back and save this guy. No, he was trying to save his own hide. He sees Zach. He says, hey, and by the way, guys, let me just say that I played that scene more than once, not only to capture some of the lines, but also to see him punch that dude in the face. It was almost it's one of my favorite moments in the entire movie is him I mean, punching he, that kid. He punches he decks him. The he dude. punches he him decks that straight kid. up. And he's like it. a and he's like a preteen too. Like it's not it's like fan stunt man dressed up as a kid. It's a kid took a punch to the face from Shia LaBeouf. It's one motion too. He's like it's like the punch and then the jump in the water. Like it yeah. is all one fluid action and it is a beautiful moment of defending someone. And and like you said, I think it, it captures that reactionary response that he doesn't even understand and, and know how to deal with yet. It's just happening. Yeah, and and I think the beauty of their relationship is that nothing really ever gets compromised with either of them from their personality. Zach never changes who he is in terms of his ambition, his desire to become a wrestler. It's always trying to get to the wrestling school. He never compromises that. And Tyler never compromises who he is. Going back to that scene just after the, the drugstore scene, he he's trying to 
figure out he's given Zach these rules. He's like, rule number one, uh, don't slow me down. And of course, Zach <laughs> thinks his rule is party, which I think is a great first rule. Uh, party is a fantastic way to start out your, your relationship. But at one point, he says, uh, Zach's repeating something. He doesn't use a cuss word. And Tyler goes, you don't cuss? He goes, no. He says, okay, good. Doesn't change Tyler's uh, personality at all. So you have this understanding between the two. Tyler's not trying to make Zach like him. And Zach, of course, is not trying to make Tyler like him. They've mutually agreed to go on this journey together. And I think these small moments remind us that they value each other in specific ways. And it starts with that unconventional way in which Tyler says, this guy's valuable to me. I just don't really know how that's going to play out yet. And so he takes a risk. And I think that says a lot about his character and about his heart. I think in wanting to have a restored relationship with someone on a, on a brotherly level, by the way, let me just say that I think the way in which we get Tyler's backstory is really creative. We don't get the whole thing at once. We get little bits and pieces. And of course, the soundtrack kind of helps play with that a little bit where we have, okay, something happened. Ooh, okay, something happened. And then we get that final moment. We don't even get, we don't even see the death. We don't even see the accident. We just see Tyler falling asleep at the wheel, the car moving to another lane, and then it blacks out. And so we just infer what happened. I love the fact that we don't linger. It's really, really nice. It tells us as an audience, you know what happened. We don't need to linger on it that that long. And I think it allows us to to feel like as an audience, we can be trusted. Well, later on, there's a really great scene on the raft. Don, as you mentioned, that great raft that is built. And, uh, and Tyler scolds Eleanor uh, because she ends up getting on the raft with them. Uh, for the way she treats Zach, because early on she's treating him like a like a child, which I mean he is to an extent, but she treats him like a mother to a child instead of, well, really like a like how a caregiver would with her amount of knowledge that she has, and it really highlights the limitations that people in general. She becomes a personified uh, example of how people have projected onto him what they think he is, and. In so many different ways, before and then during the scene, Tyler really helps him break free of those limitations uh, from their friendship. And then I think we get this great exclamation point on the boat where I didn't see this coming the first time I saw it, where he's like, hey, Zach, let's see how long you can hold your breath underwater. And he uses that as an opportunity to say he doesn't need to hear this. And just like in his Tyler way, he says, why are you doing this? Why do you treat him like a retail? You know, why? You know, why do you think he's a retard? I think she actually says, he actually says, uh, why are you calling him a retard? She goes, I have never used that word. And he goes, well, you're treating him like one, which is just as bad. And I'm like, man, there's some truth coming out of his mouth. I think this is a moment on the raft where both Tyler and Eleanor come to an understanding that there's something special about Zach. It's not because of his condition or in spite of his condition, but there's something about Zach as a person that makes him more than what his condition has defined him as. I'm with you. Uh, that's a great way of saying it. I can't top that. I, I think for I think that scene really goes back to the family angle we've been talking about, because in a situation like that, challenging 
the person who's been the closest to, to Zach this whole time. This is still Tyler's biggest chance and most personal chance to be a big brother uh, for the big brother he used to have and to do right by somebody. And, um, you know, at first he's impatient, you know, like when they're making the rules and the handshakes and they're in that cornfield and they're giving up shreds of clothes and little supplies to get them along the way and, and failing at making rules and all that. There's impatience there, but his impatience really evolves a little bit to pity, but more than anything to loyalty during their adventure. You know, by the time they're building a boat together and getting through their little baptisms and all that and, and the, the, the talks they have on, on how to carry yourself, you know, which they don't come out and say how to be a man. But you might as well have him be a coming of age thing about how to be a man. You know, the ideas of bad guys and good guys and the like and all that. So for that's Tyler's best moment, in my opinion, for a while there of being the good guy, you know, his first chance to do so in a, in a familial way, like you're saying. Yeah, I like the fact that there's been build up to that moment where we have the Lord of the Rings party going on and Tyler and Eleanor have already gotten into it once about this same thing, about how to handle Zach. And he tells her, while you've been doing paperwork, we've been busy living, which I love. I love that line. And he also, in that same scene later on, he watches Zach and Eleanor dance in the starlight. The fire is burning, and he's got this little grin on his face. And it's the most innocent, sweetest grin. And I think... What you see is someone who is starting to care about both of those people in different ways. And I think he sees the value that Eleanor has in Zach's life. He doesn't see her as an enemy. He doesn't see her as a problem. He just sees her as someone that needs to gently be shown, hey, there is a little bit of a different way you need to think about him in order to further your relationship and to better serve him the way you actually want to. And that's what comes out in that conversation. And of course, he's been blunt with her from the very first moment he meets her. It's great because we have that scene where she calls him nosy and he says, yeah, nosy, that's a word for it or interested. And I was like, man, I'm going to use that if I ever, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm putting that one in my back pocket. Um, that's a smooth move right there. But yeah, man, it is so cool to see that scene when he puts his head down in the water and you're like, what is going on? And what I love the most about that scene is actually when Zach comes up and he says, how long has it been? And she's like, not long enough, Zach, do it again. <laughs> and there's this great, like, not, I don't want to say hypocrisy, but it's, it's almost like a, a paradox to the fact that she's telling him to do the same thing because she wants to get something done for herself. And, you know, Tyler is simply showing her like there is a different method to how he cares about Zach. And it is just a beautiful moment that I really do agree, Patrick. I think it is kind of the defining, it pushes that relationship into a new place where no matter what decisions Eleanor makes down the road, she is always going to see him differently from that point forward um, and consider kind of the way that Tyler approached his relationship with Zach. I also think it's just, Another measure of Shia LaBeouf's amazing performance in this movie. Like uh, everyone goes quick to complimenting the scenes he has with Zach and the, and the repartee they share back and forth. But when he has to interact with Dakota, it, it's a different measure, a different kind of performance and a different kind of conversation. And we've always seen Shia LaBeouf as the frenetic hype guy, the guy who's just overly wound and this and that. So to see him calm that, sharpen that and, and point that in a, in a direction uh, not so much in spite, but in defense 
it's just really, really touching beyond just the, the fun of having, you know, playing around with Zach. So, and the fun part is his frenetic hyper, the way he's channeling this movie becomes contagious because that whole him changing Eleanor's mind comes back again when he stumps for uh, Zach in front of Thomas Hayden Church's Saltwater Redneck, where he's like, hey, I got this kid. You know, he, he doesn't give a complete sad sack story at that at the door with, with Thomas Hayden Church, but he just says, you know, we've come a long way. We got this, we got that. And, you know, he doesn't, doesn't oversell, but just does enough to kind of, again, kind of make that hype for Zach be contagious. And I like that about Shia's performance. I think everything about Shia's performance feels really genuine, which goes back to what you said, Aaron, about this and Honey Boy being a couple of movies that have reinvented him or reestablished him in a new era of his acting career. I I don't know where it's going to go from here, but it reminds me a little bit of, I guess, a, a redemption story like Robert Downey Jr. had when he became Iron Man. It led to a lot of more successful films and really just a, a redemption of his own life as an actor, which is which is pretty fantastic. I think that that scene on the boat allows us to see how Zach unintentionally helps Eleanor and Tyler understand their extreme natures and how they can come together to understand what one another because they're both somewhat abrasive in their own way we can't really genuinely root for one over the other because eleanor we understand her motive but she doesn't quite understand the nature of zach needing to be free she's been making the decisions for him and that's not entirely her fault because where does she work she works in an old folks home where she says i quote unquote have to watch people die. I'm holding people's hands when they're dying. I put people to bed and I change their underwear and I wipe their butts. So she's informing us in the fact that there are people that she works with that they can't make their own decisions. They can't do the basic things that they need to live. She has to make those decisions for them. And even though Zach doesn't live in that world in terms of his function, he lives there geographically, and I think she's unintentionally impressed that part of her life on him. And so she needs Tyler equally as much as he needs her because she reminds him that there has to be some discipline. You can't just be a free spirit. You have to be able to have some structure in order to keep living. I mean, the guy is living on peanut butter and change here and there how they got watermelon i guess they stole them i I kept thinking about that how are they getting the food that they're getting i would imagine it's because they're stealing them because of the fact that he can't even afford to get a sandwich and a beef jerky and whatever but that that raft scene does so much to help both of these guys understand where they are and where they need to get to and i think zach is the linchpin in that the other aspect of this that i think the movie does really well is the fact that Zach actually helps Tyler in terms of getting through his stuff. As we mentioned before, Tyler has a lot of weight on his shoulder. He feels, at least we infer, that he feels responsible for his brother's death. He's carrying that around. Don, you mentioned that he wants to be a big brother. He wants to have this purpose in his life that's going to allow him to feel like, you know what, I'm not a failure. I have significance to somebody else. And 
I believe that Zach provides that form, but not in a way that we feel like he fills in the gaps. I don't think he's ever going to replace Tyler's brother. One, because he was the younger brother, and that's a different kind of relationship. I'm always going to be my brother's younger brother. There's never going to be an instance where he is younger than me in terms of age. (laughs) But there have been moments in our lives at four years apart where he's been in a place where he's struggled and he's called me and he says, I need you to come over. And in that moment, I played the big brother. I sat with him. I listened. I, 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 I listened to him cry and confess to me things that he wouldn't tell other people. And to me, that's being a big brother. And I think in a lot of ways, even though Tyler is sort of playing this big brother to Zach, there are times when I honestly feel like he's getting to kind of relive that younger brother role and feeling like in a sense, he's do- he's getting it right. Like he's getting a chance to get a do over in some ways, which I know sounds kind of weird, but I feel like he's do- he's getting a chance to do both because of his relationship with Zach. Yeah, I'm with you. It helps that Zach is just so amiable. You know, the idea that he really puts the loyalty out there as being a two-way street. You know, his unquestioned, just uh, not just following through the cornfields and all the little, you know, trials and tribulations they have, but just um, it's a part that impresses me about Zach's performance as a as a person with an intellectual disability is his verbalization of all of that. You know, we we get a guy like you said, his like Aaron said when he's first introduced, we see a guy with you know, he stomps away the stereotypes that people have of Down syndrome people, you know, and Zach's performance really shows just what he can say with his words that he, even if he's inviting people to birthday parties and things like that, just his verbalization of that loyalty just shines so true and so nice. And it's nice to see um, a performance given that shot. I, I, when Aaron said the backstory at the beginning of the podcast about how the, the filmmakers have met Zach in the past and, and built this role for him, I never knew that before tonight. You know, that's amazing to me. And that's, and not just that, oh, then he's been cute and he's been fostered to kind of get to this point in performance. No, you still got a guy who I can be just as loyal as anybody, no matter a disability, no matter handicap, because of the genuineness of the relationship. And I think that's the thing that's just so powerful and so good about it. Oh, completely agree. And I, I think one of the key aspects in him helping Tyler is that Zach is not scared. Zach is not intimidated by this stranger. Zach is on equal footing to Tyler as a human being. He treats him like he would anybody else. He is open with his feelings and thoughts. He doesn't hide them and close them in. You know, early on, he straight up says, will you please help me? I'm scared. I can't swim. Like he, there's no questioning, like wonder what's wrong with that guy. You know, he tells Tyler with his words, this is what I'm feeling right now. And that's something that we all struggle with, right? There's no snark in it. He's saying, hey, dude, uh, you're here with me, and there's water, and I can't swim, and I don't want to die. Could you help me out? You know, it's just very honest and straight to the point. At one point, he says, I want to explain to you that I have Down syndrome, and I want to tell you about it and give you a backstory on who I am and what I feel. He does it a couple of different times that are really powerful moments, and I think that those help Tyler out a lot and help break that bond down. Obviously the use of the handshake, there's a, one of my favorite like single shots. If I could get a gif of anything in this entire film, it would be 
the hands. It would be when they're on the raft after the meeting with the blind man Jasper, and they're just going down the river together, and they touch each other's face, man. And I, ah, <laughs> uh, here we go. No, no, I lose it. I lose it because that is such a. It's a, it's a Jonathan and David biblical manly love for one another. Crap. In that moment, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, an expression that doesn't require any words. And he does it to Tyler and Tyler responds with that back to him. And I think he breaks these walls down in Tyler that allow him to become a different person. And that's where we get to Tyler going as far out as he does. I mean, at one point, Zach comes out with a shotgun to protect Tyler. You know what I mean? He saves his life, essentially, or saves his hand. I actually want to talk to you about that and see what you guys' thoughts are on this because one of the things that stood out to me this viewing was Tyler's actions not being not just not legal but there's really no reason for them so he I mean other than personal gain so he steals crab pots in the beginning of this movie right he's clearly down on his luck he needs money He's recovering from PTSD from his brother's death. So he steals these pots. Duncan and his guys get angry because their pots have been stolen and threaten him. And then he responds to that by burning them, which we find out later was a $12,000 loss. So they come at him. They chase him down. And the whole time they're kind of portrayed as villains. John Hawks is an awesome villain in anything he ever can be in, but they, they're portrayed that way to us. But when they come at him, at one point, he even tells Tyler after that scene where Zach saves him with a shotgun and they're going to hurt him. He says, you're not the only one that's hard up around here. We need that money. And dude, for the first time in my, watching this, I had empathy for Duncan. And I was like, you know what? These guys did nothing wrong. I mean, they may be jackasses. They may be rude and mean guys. Who knows? But they have done nothing out of their way to cause this problem. They are a rival and they have been wronged and they are simply trying to right that wrong. Do they go over the edge when they go and attack him physically? Probably. But there's like an empathy there to me. And I wondered what you guys thought about that. If you if you even reacted to that hardly at all, or if you just saw them in the story as a villain. And also because of that, did either of you feel like Tyler is absolved of his crimes by the end of this? Has he paid his dues somehow? Um, or do you feel like he's still maybe on the run? I'll be the quick one here. This this was classic frontier justice. You know, this is off the book stuff from John Hawks heavy. You know, so, and, and, uh, you know, Tyler got his tire iron to the head. He had it coming. He's paid his debt. He's done. And that's as far as it'll ever get. I know he's still going to go to Florida because there's a better life and obviously no John Hawks down there. So that, I mean, the evasion continues, but at the same time, that's, that's about all the justice I thought that would be meted out. I think when you look at where the narrative is focused, it makes sense that that B plot is probably wrapped up somewhat like a bow, you know, albeit <laughs> Tyler gets just beaten almost to death. The bow being I, a medical bandage around his head. <laughs> well, so I'll say this. There was a line, not a line. There was a, there was a review of this movie that said, this is this year's Florida project. And I agree 
to the extent that the ending seems a little bit out of left field, unexpected, that in the same way that Florida Project was. It's one reason that Florida Project got taken down a notch for me when I watched it, because there is a deviation that takes place that's, for me, inconsistent from the rest of the movie. You could say the same thing about this movie. There's a, gosh, there's an awful shot where Zach is, I think he's got his birthday cupcake or something. He's holding it in the hospital, and you see this fantastic shot in the background of Eleanor talking to a doctor and she's just weeping. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, Tyler's dead. He's dead. Yeah. And then you see the next scene where he pops up and this time around guys, I honestly thought, wait a minute. Is this a fantasy? Is this a, ah, the happy ending in Zach and Eleanor's head or in Zach's head? Because he's going, I'm, I'm not convinced that it is because right. For logistics and stuff like that. But I felt that way. And I felt like, okay, the filmmakers want to give us a happy ending. If they had made it truly fantastical, the injuries wouldn't be nearly as bad. So I, I kind of went with the, okay, this is realistic, but it still felt a little inconsistent because you got this emotion and then you're like, oh, just kidding. We're going to go to Florida and everybody's going to live happily ever after. I didn't mind that as much, the Florida project, because of the fact that I wanted a happy ending for these people. So subjectively speaking, it was fine to an extent, but Aaron, to, to, to your point, I don't think that because the focus wasn't on that particular situation, it didn't bother me as much. I do think, yeah, Tyler is a schemer and he's unapologetic about that, but we learned to accept that the same way we would in movies like Shawshank, where we see people doing things because they have to, even though they're illegal or wrong or morally ambiguous, we, we get those characters and we fall in love with those characters. And so in our heads, we sort of justify their actions because we want them to succeed. Even if that success is driven by deception, possibly injury to another person. But I absolutely agree with you that when you watch the, the motivation of these quote bad guys, I have sympathy for those guys. They said, I think at some point in the movie, there are only 15 licenses or 10 licenses or a limited amount of these licenses that go around. There are. And I didn't know that. That's probably a, a truth, yeah. like a fact. The fact that there are a limited amount of licenses, there's limited resources. Yep. It's not just that there aren't the amount of you know sea creatures that you can go get. You also have the amount of people that's limited and actually who can get them. So if this were a different kind of movie, I'd probably have a more empathy than than I would. But I still touched on that a little bit. And that's where his upsetness is coming from because he's, I believe they've lost their license because of his brother and they, they have his license now. And so he's wanting that back, but it's not by any stretch of the imagination. We can't, we don't learn that it's their fault. They've done nothing malicious in order to get it necessarily. Um, it is life, right? Competing resources, as you said. And so he's lashing out in anger at them and I too, it doesn't bother me. Uh, the, it, this is in the story. I think it's great for the same reason that you just pointed out, like we talked about, or we will talk about in the future in our Shawshank episode when that one comes out, even though we've already actually talked about it. Uh, oops. But uh, a little bit of a time jump there. So <laughs> the point being that 
these things in the story give us a way to reflect on that and to think about that. And I personally don't want the perfect Disney ending that would have been there if Tyler had somehow gone to them and apologized and everything would have worked out just fine. I believe that he made some mistakes and he is a flawed person who is learning and growing in his life, which is important to me. And I think that going forward, he has learned lessons that I believe with his new family in tow, he is not going to make those mistakes again. And that, yes, he has essentially paid his dues uh, by nearly being killed over what he did. But to some extent, you know, part of me says, I hope he mails him a $12,000 check too, because he kind of owes those guys. Uh, and it, it's just, it's fun to make sure you actually look at movies like that and not write them off because it wasn't the perfect story. Like, like I, I feel like that's an element where people could be like, oh, there's like a plot hole there. That's not a plot hole, right? We've had those conversations in the Facebook group. Um, or people could get upset about that because Tyler's the bad guy and he's not portrayed as a bad guy. You know, we were supposed, we're not supposed to feel so sympathetic for him. No, it's about movies are about making us think about this and talk about it and consider how we reflect on what we see, not showing you exactly what you want to happen. Absolutely. But one more question I have before we move into our connecting points, um, unless you guys have anything else is this is in and of itself, it's a coming of age movie, which I know that we all love. It's also a road movie. It quite literally takes place on the road, but also takes place on the river. You have these two guys going down river, experiencing uh, what I think are just some fantastic montages of enjoying what's around them. I think that, um, Aaron, you mentioned early in the, in the show that there were moments that were, that were ad-libbed. I don't know if those were, uh, filmed as part of the montages, like with the, with the, uh, with the watermelon helmet, uh, fights or whatever it was, or just these things that take place when they're trying to build the raft. But I that's feel- a great scene. I, I just, because you mentioned it, I just totally forgot to mention it when we were talking earlier, but that, I love the fact that this movie has a training montage, guys. It has a training montage. Like, yeah, it does. All great movies have a training montage. And, as, and as as can, yeah. we see them, him rolling bales of hay. Eventually, Shia's like on top of it. I feel like that's like one of the scenes where maybe they were just messing around, goofing off. And then they were like, oh, that's even cooler. Like with you, like standing on top of it, you know, and him walking the tightrope of the train tracks and like using the environment around them. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that because it shows us. Why am I saying shot? What's his name in the movie? Uh, Tyler. Wow. It's showing us Tyler's creativity and ingenuity. Like he's got, he's a smart guy, right? Like, it sh- you know, we see Zach be the schemer early on. We get to see Tyler doing some of that too. He's not some dumb redneck that you might want to believe based on the way he looks and what his job is. And the fact mm-hmm. that he happily carries around a shotgun while walking into a grocery store. No, he's a bright, bright young man. And it shows in the way that he helps Zach train. And it also is a good start to like breaking down those walls and really forming that bond. But anyway, super fun moment that I just I wanted to talk about a minute. Well, well, what you're saying really kind of informs the observation that I made with regard to the fact that because they're out amongst the wild or the frontier, as you mentioned, Don, I think that's a great way to put it. They're, they're really untethered from society. They're not having to go to jobs. They're not having, they're not getting paychecks. They're not limited by their environment. They're actually using the environment to their advantage to get them to where they need to be. 
specifically I think it's North Carolina and then eventually Florida where they where they meet up with the um gosh now the wrestler escapes me I forget his salt name Saltwater Redneck Thank you the Saltwater Redneck which hey by the way I don't know if anybody's noticed this if you're listening or if you two noticed this but Jake the Snake Roberts makes a cameo Absolutely. as Sam I think mm-hmm. it's pretty fantastic um Nick Foley in there yeah uh, it's so good so good I love that stuff and I I think when you have a setting like this in a road movie, I don't know that you'd have the same kind of impact if they were tied down to an environment like a working world. And I think that has to do with the fact that both of them are coming from those places. Tyler obviously is coming from a quote unquote job that he wants to keep. But the fact is, if he kept the job, he probably wouldn't end up meeting Zach. And then Zach is coming from an environment that's not a job necessarily, but it's a structured environment that he doesn't fit in. And both of them, because of their motivations, they have to get to a certain place. I think being on the road, having that kind of environment help them not only get to where they wanted to geographically, but also help them resolve these this incompleteness that is in each of their hearts. Um, by filling it up with a friendship with each other, but also finding validation in what they are eventually trying to pursue in their own individual lives. You know, I'm right there with you. I don't think this relationship happens quite the same way in a more civilized or urbane setting. Um, I, I do think there will always be people like like Tyler out there who have the capacity to help the Zacks of the world. But um, but a setting change would make that like make that help likely come from a place of and I hate to label it like this and go there, but it would help in that kind of setting or in a more civilized place would feel like it's coming from a place of higher privilege. You know what I mean? It would be some better person helping the lesser person. Whereas these two guys are both kind of in the same, you know, podunk situation of things, you know, they're, they're both small town guys. They both have that kind of, you know, just like you said, they're not really working. They're a different setting entirely. And they're not quite equals in, in, in a way, but, their backgrounds are kind of and on an even enough plane that it works here because a different setting like this, you got like Midnight Cowboy. You got, you know, Dustin Hoffman's pimp helping John Voight's, uh, you know, Hayseed hey, try to not be a prostitute, which is weird. You know, it would just come across just very, very different. So I don't know. I think it goes back to the, the genuineness of where we're all going with this. I think the the more genuine this rural tone and the natural nuances of this story are. How, um, how slower it is, how more analog it is, um, just fits this better. I know people go straight to the Twain comparisons. I didn't want to do that in my review, and I wouldn't do it here. It, I feel like it can stand on its own, even though we have a raft and all that. But we're not talking about racial dynamics here. We're not talking about a time capsule of different history, which is where Twain stuff came from. It's just two dudes, you know, and two dudes who both need an escape and both find loyalty in each other. I think that's. I think you could get stories like that in a different setting but it just wouldn't be the same. Yeah, you're not going to be catching a fish with your bare hands just because you were holding your breath underwater in your bathtub. I, you know, I think that, and I'm going to speak to this even more, I think, once we get to my connecting point, but it, there is something very important about the being untethered from society that allows you to connect with a human being in a way that you just can't when you are distracted by a million other things. Like I said, I'm going to talk about that more um, when we get there, but I do think that 
there's no way this kind of story works in a traditional setting like Zahn said with the a bourbon, a bourbon, a bourbon. No, bourbon. Now that's alcohol. That's it works with bourbon. Uh, it doesn't work in a suburban or an urban setting because there is just too many things to take away your attention, to take away what you need to focus on. But when you have nothing but each other out on that dusty road or in that field or on that river, things come out, man. And you're able to rely on each other in a way that you would never have allowed yourself to do before. And so it is beautiful. I love that we have stories like these and it is exactly what both Zach and Tyler needed. That's the beauty of the overall narrative here is getting to see the growth and the positive outcomes for both of those characters. And, and even Eleanor, once she gets into the mix, there's something interesting about the fact that their environment isn't a man versus nature, because that could be something that could be taken in another narrative where they have to battle the elements of being downriver. They're fighting the Southern storms that take place. And I like the fact that the environment became a, a, um, I like the fact that the environment became an ally, that it wasn't a an enemy to them, that that wasn't something that they had to overcome. I think that would have distracted from the narrative that we got, where they already had a lot of burdens that they were, in a lot of ways, each carrying for each other. And Aaron, that scene that you mentioned earlier where they're touching each other's faces, I think in some ways for me was a way in which they were kind of transferring each other's burdens onto another. Uh, you used the biblical example of Jonathan and David later on in, in scripture. Um, I think it's Peter that talks about being able to carry one another's burdens as brothers in Christ. And I think that's what we get there. I mean, not necessarily the biblical comparison, but that's what I picked up on where it's almost like the symbolic gesture of I'm going to take your burden and you can take mine and we can carry it evenly. So there might be days when I'm carrying something that's heavier and you can help pick me up and vice versa. I'd like to believe that that's their life going forward is that they see, you know what? Tyler tells Zach, you're going to have to carry your own weight. But by the end of the movie, I think that changes. I think the fact is they're carrying each other's weight at any given point. When Zach picks up that shotgun, and he defends Tyler, that's him picking up that weight because, because Tyler needs that. 30 minutes before, 45 minutes before, inside this narrative, I don't think that would have happened because they experienced stuff together. They experienced life on the river. They experienced life on the road, and they found that common ground. It's just beautiful. It really, really is, and it doesn't feel forced. It's one of those things where – I think there's some criticism out there that says this is a very simple story and it kind of captures the emotions in a cheap way. I don't think it does. I think it does something to a person that reminds us that just because a story is simple and just because it evokes a certain kind of emotion that might feel like cliche, it doesn't make it untrue. It's still real. It just doesn't have to be such a heavy hitting thing. And in a lot of ways, if, this, if the story is simple enough, it captures us in a way that a monumental, heavy Manchester by the Sea type movie does without all of the all of the weight. I'm right there with you. I, I've had that 
very challenge presented to me on Facebook in conversations with people and even a few fellow critics about this movie where they find it to be just too simpleton. And I'm like, and here I'll, I'll shout out to fellow Chicago and Mike Crowley. You'll probably agree and retired Florida critic Tim Day of Day of the Movies. But uh, Mike set out and said that the movie was too simple. And I say that's OK. Tim kind of said you can, you can say that about 10,000 films. And he's right. Um, for me, it's, I think it boils down to this. is It's how well a movie can execute simple ideas to match in there in a matching narrative because you know basic and cheap can still be rich effective even artful we've seen beasts of the southern wild we've seen the california backyards of et you don't need you know grandiose things like, like your com- you know your comparison or your 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 foil of manchester by the sea i don't need the place beyond the pines out here you know I, this can be just the exact tone it is where especially through LaBeouf, you know, LaBeouf earns every, earns the personal and professional redemption on and off screen in this movie, even without seeing Honey Boy yet, where, yeah, just the ambition and the effort to put a movie like this out there unabashedly is worthy enough where, go ahead, be simple, be do simple really, really well. That's great, Don. I, I agree. And I think if it's done well, it's good. It doesn't have to be miraculous. Nah. Yeah, I'm with you. Well, let's move into our connecting points, if that's cool with you guys. Don, do you want to get us started? Sure. My connecting point to this was um, was teaching students with intellectual disabilities. Um, I've got a little history there. Before going to college, I worked for years as a very non-glamorous YMCA lifeguard. Uh, and we're talking like early morning senior exercise shifts at an indoor pool, not hot girls in the beach at all. Anyhow, um, I would often help out with swim lessons there as kind of an assist- assistant instructor. And um, one of my former teachers who taught me as a kid, I uh, used to bring in uh, students with special needs and handicapped students for kind of specialized lessons in the water. And I loved helping out with those lessons because it was awesome to see these young people and adults who sometimes needed walkers to get around on land swimming like joyful fishes in the water. And just almost not so much like Zach swimming lesson in this movie, but just fulfilling moments like that where they're overcoming a fear and they're finding joy in something that would normally intimidate them. Those are the roots of the ideas that made me want to be a teacher instead of a journalist. And, you know, helping somebody overcome a fear, helping somebody learn a life skill that can come in handy is the 16 year old version of me. That's the lightning bolt that made me want to be a teacher. And even in extreme cases, like with with handicapped students and handicapped people. And um, in the 20 years since then, um, I've just really relished the chances to kind of be a helper and an ally to that sector of the community. I've had Down syndrome students in my class. It's always been wonderful and rewarding just there's something just i don't know uh, special the lamest word to put there there's just something something amazing about those folks and the way they persevere and and the way they make lives for themselves just just in an easygoing kind of way and looking at this movie i marvel at what zach Gottsagen was able to do in this movie you know no impediments can hide his endearing charm his comic timing his screen presence um I, I, I'm always impressed by Shia LaBeouf's outspoken support of him. When you see all the red carpet stuff about this movie, it's just, you know, Zach this, Zach that. It's not about him. I watched um, Shia LaBeouf's interview on Hot Ones with the with the chicken wings and stuff like that. You know, great YouTube channel. And, it, it, you know, one, you get to see a, a changed man in Shia LaBeouf, but him just wax poetically about this movie and how much it just changed him and helped him out. And, and it's all on Zach. So I love the empowerment that Zach's starring role can mean for that branch of representation too, you know, um, it's so rare we get to see a person with any kind of intellectual disability get a shot in a movie, let alone a lead shot. Or I know he's going to be on a supporting ballot on our on our 
for your consideration DVD screeners, but he'd be on my Oscar ballot if I have one. And I just marvel at watching a performer like that come from an unexpected place and do great. Fantastic. Aaron, what about you? Well, my connecting point in general is having a story to tell, which kind of came up a little bit earlier and Don alluded to. So the moment that triggers this is when Tyler is, again, showing that ingenuity and building this trash bag air raft to float Zach across the river. This incredible engineering idea, right, that he comes up with. And Zach is freaking out, as he does several times during the movie, and he's like, am I going to die? And Tyler says, without hesitation, yeah, you're going to die. It's just a matter of time. That ain't the question. The question is whether they're going to have a good story to tell about you. Now, come on. And they go across the river, and it is a traumatic experience, you would think, as a shrimp boat almost runs over Zack, and Tyler is feverishly pulling him to try and make sure that doesn't happen. But instead of coming up on shore crying and scared, Zack is elated, and they want to do the secret handshake because some special shit just happened. And Zack says... With elation, that is a freaking story to tell. Now, come on. <laughs> and I, I love the coda there of throwing the now come on right back at Tyler, who is like clearly distraught over what just happened. Like he is registering for him that he almost potentially lost Zach, right? And it's fun because this moment comes back when Zach is excitedly telling Eleanor about this on the raft. And you can tell Tyler's like, Maybe we shouldn't be telling her that you almost got run over by a shrimp boat. But she's like, what? And Zach's excited, right? And that is the whole point of this paying off. Because he had a story to tell. He got to tell that story. And it makes me think about my own life or all of our lives. And do I have stories to tell? Should I be making more of an effort to consistently make new stories? It may seem pretty dark to kind of talk about this, but Tyler is right. We're all going to die. And none of us know when that's going to happen. Our time is finite. A few years ago, my ex started suggesting that we give the kids experiences more than gifts. And this movie reminded me of that, that maybe that's the way to go. Because that's where the memories are formed. That's where growth and relationships um, occurs. And I was just lamenting the other day, actually, to someone about how much of our time is wasted, that we seemingly work to live. We work five days of our lives so that we can have two days to cram all of the other stuff that maybe we want to get done and have fun doing or enjoy living with other people into that space. It's crazy. Like, what's wrong with us? Why, why are our lives revolving around working so that we can barely have any time to do anything with what we worked to get. And so it's a powerful point to me. And it's one that I think, honestly, we could all take cues from have an adventure, whatever that is for you. Maybe it's not exactly what you see in this movie, but do something that is going to be a story and that is going to make life worth it. Yeah, man, you keep taking those hikes with those kids of yours, man. It's a joy to watch that on Facebook, man. I tell you, there's something to be said about being able to tell a good story, but more importantly, being able to tell a good story about someone else. And whether that person can hear it or not, I think is just bonus. 
I've been telling this story about my son to a lot of people because it makes me laugh because it says a lot about him. And I don't want to tell the story, not because it's, it's a secret, just because it's just off point. But every time I tell it, it speaks volumes about his personality at almost seven years old and how it sometimes sounds like he's a 12 year old. But it also speaks into the fact that this may be the kid that he becomes. This may be the man that he becomes because of some of the stuff that he's saying right now. And we all do this. I mean, all, all of us have kids. And so we're always sharing that with, with people on social media because we're proud. We're proud of our children. We're proud of more than anything, the fact that they are doing something maybe that we can't or they're doing something better than us, but the fact that they come from us. I mean, I don't mind being egotistical in that regard. The fact that this person who comes from myself and my wife, either by blood or by choice, is representing me. He's representing us. And the fact is, when we experience that, I think when we, the good stories that we have to tell, if they're not about other people, they're at least fueled by the fact that we experience them with them, that we're in real time with those people. I think I, I remember seeing something on uh, the power of social media and how we share more than ever now, but we miss more than ever too. Uh, there was a great shot of, um, I think, a big parade that showed all these people holding their phones up watching the parade and this older lady is just watching with no device on on her person and the caption reads this old lady is experiencing more than anybody else in the crowd or something like that and there's some truth to that we would rather film something on our phones and see it through a three inch screen than actually watch more often than not because we want to capture the experience and we feel like maybe that's more important than actually experiencing it I'm not going to necessarily say that people are wrong for doing that. I do it too. My wife, she captures so many things on film. She captures uh, our son doing all these things because we want to capture those memories. But the fact is there's seven to 10 gigs of photos on my computer right now of which we will probably never look at because we're afraid of losing those memories that we actually never see. And the fact is the big stories, the real stories, the ones that make the most impact that we tell are ones that we can experience viscerally. And Aaron, I think you're exactly right. This experience in the movie of almost being like mowed down by a shrimp boat, if you'd captured that on video, that would have been one experience. But to actually experience that and be the guy that's pulling this guy along or being the guy that's being pulled along, that's a story worth telling. And there's something about being connected to it that viscerally that makes it have more of an impact when you tell it or when you experience it. And I think that moment kind of leads into mine because that was a bonding moment for them. And a couple of scenes later, there's a scene where they're hanging out. Uh, it's night. They're getting ready to go to sleep. Zach's sitting back smoking a cigarette. By the way, there's, there's some great aerial shots. There's the aerial shot of the shrimp boat coming to almost get Zach. I think that's pretty fantastic. There's a wide shot of, Tyler teaching Zach how to shoot the gun where he flies back. I think that's a fantastic shot. And then there's another shot in this particular scene that I'm in love with where there's an aerial shot of Zach in kind of an angel position laying flat on the dirt, looking up at the sky, so relaxed, so vulnerable. It's just, oh, it's amazing. And he's asking Tyler 
where he's telling Tyler how he wants to be a bad guy. He wants to be a heel wrestler. And Zach says, you can't do that. And he says, quote, you get a good guy heart. You can't do shit about it. That's just the way it is. You're a hero. <laughs> and there's a pause. And Zach says, are you a good guy or a bad guy? And there's a hesitation with Zach because he goes, I don't know. What do you think? And, <laughs> and Zach goes, you're a good guy. And then it goes into what we see as the last part of getting the backstory of who, of what happened with him and his brother. And he's wrestling with that. And I think there's a, that moment exclamation pointed with, it gets him thinking about, is that true or not? And there's a moment on the raft, Aaron, you mentioned it where they're, you know, they're touching faces, but there is this fantastic line. And the way it's shot is beautiful. Zach looks at Tyler and he says, Tyler, you can have all my wishes. And any director that doesn't know what they're doing would turn around, turn the camera around, and it would look right at Shia LaBeouf and it would watch him break down. But they don't do that here. They keep the shot right where it is. We see these two and the, their backs are to the camera and we see the reaction of Tyler after hearing that. And we see him breaking down. And in that moment, I believe in my heart that Tyler said, I'm having a breakthrough. This is therapy for him. This is the moment where he says, you know what? I believe that because you believe in me because I'm not a bad guy. I have a good heart. And I don't think that moment would have happened had we not had this conversation a couple of scenes earlier where Zach is not trying to impose anything on Tyler. He is genuinely saying, I think you have a good heart because I don't know who you were before this. I don't know that you were a thief. I don't know that you were a, an arsonist. And frankly, guys, I don't know that he would care because he sees who Tyler is now and who he's been since he's met him. Um, and I think that speaks volumes about their friendship and about what it means to be connected to each other. To have that moment on the raft, I think, made that scene prior to it so much more impactful. And, uh, and that's why it's my connecting point. Gosh, you pick a good one. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Nah. Or the whole movie, because it's all right, right. No kidding. Right? <laughs> but I mean, but don't you just love movies that just punch in the heart like that? It's so rare. It's nice to see a good wholesome film do that. This thing's a tidy 97 minutes. You can put it on at a midday. I know it's uncouth and it, you know, it's got its, you know, profanity and all that. I can't show it to my own kids. But uh, man, put this in front of some teens and watch some hearts melt. And I just, I love that. I love that. I know. You guys hear me put this drivel on the Facebook group all the time where there's a difference between favorites and best and it's hard to see, you know, a movie do both. This one does both. You know, it might be my number one favorite, personal favorite of the year. I, I think there are movies that are better than it here and there in, in different some places, but gosh, this is, this is a good double. I think it's safe to say that we need more movies like this, even if yes, they're sir. not the blockbusters like that much in the, right. in the theater realm. This hearts beat loud. You said it earlier, Don. I think these are movies that help accent the year. They they really remind us that, you know, if I'm going to be cheesy, there's good in the world. There are people out there that are not just making quality films; they're making 
quality movies that make people give give people hope. They right. make people realize that you know what we are inherently decent people and we can be right. So it's just there's a lot of good stuff there. Yeah, and to all the folks, and I have to take it to the business. You know what we learned this week, Angle. This is also proof that the independent scene is alive and well. There yeah. are smart people making great movies. You just have to find them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're out there. They're not dying. They're not getting bounced out of theaters any more than the next movie's getting bounced out of theaters. You just have to find them. You got to give them love and share the audience. Yep. And a movie like this, we will, the three of us, among other people, will shop on the mountaintops and just put a little closer in the middle every time. Absolutely. Well, that wraps up another episode here at Feelin' Film. Don, thank you for joining us again. Yes, and, uh, happy 199. Good job on 200 coming up, fellas. It's awesome. Oh. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Hey, if people want to connect with you and uh, what you from a film critic standpoint offer, uh, where can they find you? Um, the easiest way to do it is everymoviehasalesson.com. You can use that term in Google to find me on Twitter and, uh, and on Facebook. I also publish uh, different works and reviews on a site called 25 Years Later. Uh, that's 25YL is the easiest way to search the term for that. Um, got some different reviews going up there. I'm trying to help them get on Rotten Tomatoes and expand that little site. It's been fun to have to have a boss and have an editor. But uh, between those two shingles, that's where I'm going to be. Fantastic. Well, as Don alluded to, we have got a big week coming up for you over the next several days. To celebrate our 200th episode, we are delivering not one but three episodes covering the Indiana Jones trilogy beginning on Tuesday and going through Thursday. We also have an episode of FF Plus making its way in there as well as we talk spoiler-free about Frozen 2, Honey Boy, Waves, and Little Women. And finally on Friday, we finally get to cover the movie that seemed like an elusive unicorn on our schedule, our November pick, The Shawshank Redemption. That was my attempt at being a bad Morgan Freeman, so I apologize. So you, you want to get ready at being a bad Morgan Freeman. That, I know. That, well, that was so, yeah, I guess I succeeded at that. So, <laughs> that's a bucket list item for me is to get better at that impression, but I don't know that's going to happen. So you want to get ready for some good traveling conversation. And um, guys, thank you for another great conversation here. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.